Welcome listeners to Short Story Saturday on A Writer's Life. I'm your host, Heike Bohm, the author of the novel Secrets in the Shadows. Short Story Saturday is a weekly podcast where you get to hear stories from writers around the world on A Writer's Life. I love being read too. I'm recording on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish Nation. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Short Story Saturday on A Writer's Life. Today's author is Natasha J. Rosewood. Before immigrating to BC from the UK, Natasha traveled and worked internationally as a flight attendant, amassing five languages and acquiring extensive metaphysical knowledge. Since 1995, Natasha has evolved from spirit healer to corporate energy dynamics consultant. Her other skills include author, screenwriter, intuitive reader, manifestation coach, ghostbuster, past life regressionist, speaker, workshop facilitator, fundraiser, TV and radio personality. Her three books, Ah, I Think I'm a Psychic, and You Can Be Too. Ah, I Thought You Were Dead, and Other Psychic Adventures, and Mostly True Ghostly Stories, are enlightening, empowering, and entertaining. Her latest book, a sequel entitled Flight of Your Life Short Haul and Flight of Your Life Long Haul, is in the process of attracting the right publisher. Welcome, Natasha, to Short Story Saturday. Thank you, Heike. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful having you. (laughs) We love telling our stories. (laughs) We sure do. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you remember your first day of school? And if so, what was that like for you? I do not remember the first day. That's a really good question. Never been asked that one before. But I can tell you it was kind of romantic because we lived out in the countryside and I, together with my older sister and older brother, had to walk two miles when I was five years old through the countryside to the school. And I always remember the general memory that, you know, after about one and a half miles, I was called to my brother and and my brother used to have to carry me the last quarter mile. So I think I owe him one <laughs> for, for getting me to school for that period of time. But it was a long trek, and we were all bundled into the same one classroom, all ages. So our teacher had quite a challenge, I think, in teaching us on all those different levels. But it worked because I'm now a writer. <laughs> <laughs> and your short story is titled? The Cheap Seat, Chapter 11, From Flight of Your Life, Short Haul, 
by Natasha J. Rosewood. It should have been an uneventful flight. After all, we were just flying one short sector from Manchester to Glasgow. The tour operator was Saga, and to qualify for their trips, passengers had to be 60-plus, though they were mostly much older. These passengers sometimes only made it one way, outbound, and some didn't even travel that far. The more infirm snuffed it in flight, in the cabin or in the loose, and the inbound passenger manifest often included pine boxes, which were stowed in the cargo hold. Saga deaths were one of my worst fears. Today, wheelchair passengers and those with other medical paraphernalia were taking the usual protracted time to board the 89-seater, two-engine BAC-111. While Pauline organised her galley at the front of the plane and the new girl, the Scottish Roberta, helped the passengers settle into their seats, I counted heads. 89, I confirmed with the ramp officer who waited in the galley, clutching his clipboard. He nodded. All load. He then poked his head into the flight deck. All on board, sir. Have a good flight, he called, and then disappeared into the airport finger. Roberta, will you bring up the rear stairs and close the rear door, please? I asked the dark-haired Scottish hostess as I returned to the galley. Oh, I've just done it, she responded. It's closed. Oh, good. I appreciated a new girl that didn't have to be told the routine. Just come into the galley a second and pull the curtain behind you, I said. Roberta stepped inside and pulled the blue fabric until it fully blocked the view of passengers still settling into their seats and fumbling with belongings. The flight's barely 50 minutes, I informed my two crew, and I doubt if we'll go above 10,000 feet. Service is a light snack and one tea and coffee. Any questions, Roberta? Ah, hen, I think I know what to do. Good. I picked up the handset from the galley bulkhead and began the pre-flight announcement as both cabin crew, clutching oxygen masks and life jackets, positioned themselves forward and mid-cabin for the safety demonstration. Ladies and gentlemen, I began. As soon as I had finished, and while the aircraft began taxiing, Roberta checked that passenger seatbelts were fastened, beginning at the rear and moving forward, while Pauline checked from the front. Once the girls affirmed cabin secure, I called into the flight deck. Usually I would receive a thumbs up from the captain, but he turned. Rear door's not closed, he called over the noise of revving engines. I groaned. Maybe Roberta didn't know what she was doing after all. Okay, I'll do it. While the junior stewardesses took their place on the double seat in the galley, I headed to the rear of the plane. On the other side of the rear door was a ventral staircase through which passengers, cleaners, engineers and sometimes firemen frequently boarded the plane. When the stairs were raised and closed, they folded flat into a panel which formed the underbelly of the aircraft's rear end. Between the flattened stairs and the rear door was a triangle of black space, which was not, like the interior of the cabin, pressurised. I saw that the rear door with its round porthole window was indeed slightly ajar. I pushed the door close and pulled the handle up into its locked position. There, I thought. Why had Roberta raised the stairs but not locked the door properly? 
I would need to speak with her after takeoff. While trying not to disturb passengers in the last row, I yanked on my retractable jump seat from its stowed location behind the back seats. Once pulled out, the metal and leather contraption snapped from its vertical position down into a chair that jutted partway into the aisle. I sat and pulled my seatbelt tight around me. As number one, I was never comfortable in this location, just forward of the port and starboard toilets, cozied up to too close to passengers. I never thought the BAC-111 configuration made sense, with the person in charge of safety being cut off, communication-wise, from the flight deck and other crew. Not to mention the noise of the two Rolls-Royce engines positioned at the rear of the plane that would probably make me go deaf before I was 30 years old. After takeoff, once the no-smoking sun had been extinguished and I heard the clunk-clunk of the undercarriage retracting, I stood up from my jump seat, pulling the spring-loaded latch of my chair until it reverted to one vertical slab. I apologised to the lady on my right as I jostled the jump seat behind her chair. "'They don't let you sit for long, do they, dear?' she commented affably. "'You have no idea,' I said." And in an attempt at Monty Python humour, I added, On this job, I have to get up before I go to my bed. What? The woman frowned and cupped her hand behind her ear. The engines were still surging for the ascent. I just smiled and waved a dismissive hand. As the aircraft continued to climb at a steep angle, I walked uphill to the front of the cabin to make my after-take-off announcement and start the cabin service but I only made it halfway. A tight grip on my arm pulled me back. From one of the aisle seats, an elderly lady was looking up at me. I don't want to be a nuisance, dear, she said, in a soft Scottish brogue, clinging to my arm. But my husband went to the loo just before takeoff, and he hasn't returned. I gazed at the eight-year-old with a sinking feeling. Oh, God, I thought. I hope he didn't meet his maker in the toilet. Don't worry, madam, I responded, knowing that there was plenty to worry about. I'll go and look. Some passengers don't know how to operate the door handle. That part was true. Once inside, passengers had to pull the toilet door inward to open the folding partition. In a very cramped space, some people suffered claustrophobia. The hostesses would often hear a loud banging at the rear of the plane and watch as the toilet door bulged outward while some poor panicking soul, in a desperate attempt to escape, was ramming the door off its hinges. People were lighting up their cigarettes, creating a haze in the cabin. The thousand seatbelt sign was still illuminated, so passengers were in their seats where they should be. When did this man disappear without my seeing him? I wondered. I hadn't noticed any empty seats on my way to the back. Maybe he had got up during the one minute I was in the flight deck, giving the captain the cabin check. I arrived at the rear and stared at both toilets. Both latches were green, indicating that they were both vacant, but that wasn't proof of non-occupancy. Apart from the loud whine of the engines, I could not hear any sounds of movement from inside the compartment, port or starboard. Which one first? Holding my breath, I chose the starboard toilet. Before opening the door, I knocked. Hello, I called out, desperately hoping there might be a response, even a feeble one. I leaned into the door and listened. 
Is anyone in there? But there was no reply. Oh God, here we go. Tentatively, I pulled the door inward and peered in. It was empty. The toilet seat was down, the sink still clean, the soap untouched. No one had been in here. He must be in the other one, I thought. Turning around, I followed the same procedure with the port toilet. Hearing no response, I dreaded opening this door. What would I see? An old man slumped over the sink in the throes of a heart attack? Or worse, a dead corpse sitting on the can with his trousers around his ankles? I pulled the door inwards and stared. As with the starboard toilet, the compartment was untouched, pristine and empty. I scanned the cabin. The wife was still sitting in her aisle seat with no one next to her. Where could he be? Passengers can't get off aircraft. Maybe he went forward. That's it. I hurried up the aisle again, hoping the man's wife wouldn't stop me. In the galley, the two junior girls were loading meals onto a trolley, but there was no stray passenger with them. I held open the flight deck door and peered in, but only the captain and first officer were in their seats, still completing their after-take-off procedures. I closed the door again. You won't believe this, I announced to Paulina Roberta, suppressing my rising panic, but a passenger has disappeared off the aircraft. Both girls stopped and stared at me. But he hasn't tried our gourmet snacks yet, Pauline joked, herself a veteran of saga flights. I wasn't amused. I grabbed the passenger manifest and searched for the passenger's name. Pauline became serious. But how the hell? The man in 11D, Mr. McPhee, went to the loo before takeoff and hasn't returned, I informed them, and both toilets are empty. Roberta pulled back the curtain to peer down the cabin, but I snatched it from her and covered the galley opening again. I did not want the man's wife to witness all three stewardesses appearing flummoxed by her husband's disappearance. Maybe the poor wee man got sucked down the biffy, Roberta offered, giggling. This is not funny, I snapped. How would I explain this on my flight report? Maybe he's a ghost and slipped out the back, Pauline offered. My eyes went wide. Oh my God, that's it. I pulled the curtain back. Pauline, can you stop the snack service with Roberta, I requested, deliberately adopting my everything-is-under-control face before starting down the aisle. I hoped to sneak by the man's wife in 11C until I knew if my theory was correct, but the woman caught me by the arm again. Have you found my husband, dear? she asked fretfully. Oh, no, I think so. Let me... Just give me a minute, please, I said, hurrying on toward the rear. God, I hope he's not dead. I arrived at the rear door, if my hunch was right, and he had fallen in there, the older man could easily have died of a heart attack, shock, an injury, or fear. It was unlikely he was still alive. I braced myself, stood on tiptoe, and peered down through the rear door's porthole into the black void. I could see something white, and it moved. Oh God, the man was in there, and he was alive so far. I wasn't sure if the plane was pressurized or if it was even possible to open the door in flight. This had never happened before, but as they were flying at just 10,000 feet, he probably had enough oxygen. Or did he? Could he survive lying prostrate on the rear ventral staircase for a 50-minute flight? In an attempt to comfort the man, I put my palm against the round window and gave a small wave. At least he would know someone was aware of his dilemma. I must tell the captain. 
As I strode up the cabin, I stopped briefly at 11C. How could I tell this frail woman that her husband was flying in the cheap seat outside the cabin? He might not be in any immediate danger from the aircraft, but he could be seriously injured or experiencing heart failure. Madam, we have found your husband, and I believe he's okay, and I'll be right back. I pulled myself away from the woman's grasp and squeezed past the snacks trolley. Captain Broadchurch, I started breathlessly once I was in the flight deck. Would it be possible to open the rear door in flight? Why, you want to get off? He turned and grinned at me. Good, I thought. He has a sense of humour. Could I be fired for allowing a passenger to fall into the rear ventral staircase? Funny you should say that. Actually, one of the passengers tried to get off. What? Both captain and first officer turned to stare at me. He must have mistaken the rear door for the loo before takeoff and stumbled in there then, I blurted. When you told me it was open, I closed it, but I didn't know. Who would think to look in there? Anticipating the question on their minds, I offered, I think he's still alive. Good, Good God, the captain snorted. The plane is partially pressurized, so we can't open the door. He should have enough oxygen, though. We'll begin our descent early, but we'll still have to wait until we land before we can open it. Oh, I groaned, empathizing with the terrible fright and noise the man must be experiencing. How long till we're down? About 25 minutes, the moustached XRAF co-pilot responded. I'll ask for clearance for a lower altitude, but it won't make that much difference to the poor bugger. Request an ambulance, the captain reminded the co-pilot. And a pine box, I was tempted to add. As I left the cockpit, I wondered what I should tell the man's wife. The other two girls working the meal trolley were just past midsection of the cabin. I went up behind Pauline and whispered the news in her ear. I found him in the rear ventral staircase. Pauline's eyes went wide as she registered shock. Is he okay? Roberta called from the other end of the cart. Can we get him out of there? I gave the new hostess a stern look, silently reminding her that passengers would be listening but they seemed blissfully unaware of the drama that was taking place, and that's the way I wanted it. Roberta blushed and resumed handing out snacks. Now the fun part, I thought, I have to tell his wife that her husband took the cheap seat. As I approached 11C, I knelt and looked into the woman's terrified eyes. Mrs. McPhee, I started, reaching for the frail hand. We have found your husband. Ooh, the little lady inhaled. Is he... He's alive and he's not in any danger. I hope that was still true. He might be a little bruised and completely deaf. It seems he went to the loo like you said, I continued, carefully picking my words. But somehow he went through the wrong... I did not want to give the woman a heart attack. Two deaths on my manifest would not look good. As far as I can tell, he's all right, but unfortunately we can't open the door during flight. Door! The woman clasped a wrinkled hand to her chest. Where... Well, it's more like a hold, I reassured her, immediately cursing myself for letting the wood door slip. I peeked through the porthole and I saw him move. We just can't get to him at the moment. Oh, my God, the woman was undoing her seatbelt. I should go. No, better you stay here. I gently squeezed the woman's hand. The captain is going to descend to a lower altitude to make your husband more comfortable. The woman's roomy eyes misted with tears. We will probably take you both to get checked up when we land, so don't be alarmed when you see the ambulance meeting the aircraft. 
Oh dear, she moaned, nodding and shakily pulling a lace handkerchief from her left sleeve to dab at her eyes. Oh dear. At the rear, I peered through the porthole again. I waved, but there was no movement now. Was he still alive? Anyone could die from the terror of being trapped in that cramped black space with engines roaring into both eardrums. For his sake, when he fell forward into the raised staircase and before the unholy noise of takeoff began, I hoped he had been knocked out. As I sat on my rear jump seat for landing, I realised that the situation could be worse. Thank God this wasn't a regular flight when they would have been flying for two or more hours at a fully pressurised 35,000 feet. With no oxygen in the enclosed staircase and temperatures outside the plane at a chilly minus 56 degrees, he would have been a goner for sure. As soon as the tyres hit the tarmac and with the plane still travelling at 130 miles per hour, I wrenched my seatbelt undone. After pulling the large handle down, I opened the rear door inwards. There, lying in the stairwell, was a tall, slim man in a dark suit. His bony hands appeared frozen to the side rails of the stairs. In the shadows, I couldn't see whether his eyes were open or closed. Please, God, don't let him be dead. I opened the door wider to allow more light from the cabin. I heard a low moan and saw a slight movement of his head. His eyes opened slowly, as if afraid of what he might see. My shape must have been silhouetted against the daylight in the cabin. Perhaps he thought he'd died and he was being greeted by a haloed being. Mr. McPhee? I asked gently. Then his face crumpled into a huge grin. He was alive. I laughed with relief. Sir, I shouted above the noise of reverse thrust. The plane is on the ground, but we are still moving. Are you injured? The man stared at me as if I was still a vision and still uncomprehending. Mr. McPhee, are you injured? I bellowed. Can you move? I stretched out a hand. Let me help you. Tentatively, he released one hand from the metal railing and clung to my outstretched wrist. Though he was frail, he pulled so hard I thought I might tumble into the stairwell on top of him. Here, let me help you, love. A strong male voice came from behind. I recognised the burly sixty-ish man from the rear row on the port side. He squeezed in beside me. Mr McPhee released my arm and grabbed the rail again so I could step back and allow burly man to take my place. Come on, Gov, he said as he crouched down. You probably want to get out of there. Steadying his weight, he clamped onto both of the older man's bony wrists and gently pulled him forward. Once the dazed man was inside the cabin, teetering and blinking in the light, and as we were still moving, he was gently placed on my jump seat where he could recover his equilibrium. I noticed a slight gash on his left temple, which he probably suffered when he stumbled into the dark hole face first. The plane had now slowed, I pressed the stewardess call button in the last row several times. At the front, Pauline stuck her head around the galley bulkhead. I signalled for her to come to the rear to give her my instructions. Can you do a PA and tell all passengers they will have to disembark at the front so the ambulance can access the rear, I told her. Before the airport nurses supported the elderly man and his shaken wife down the rear stairs, I teased, Next time, let us know you want to fly the cheap seat. We could make you more comfortable. Oh, does this mean I get a wee refund? The man countered in a soft Scottish accent, chuckling. 
No, but you might be inducted into the Flying Hall of Fame. What for, exactly? He obviously hadn't suffered any brain damage, nor had he gone deaf, I thought, relieved. Oh, you know, I smiled, hoping he would understand my flying humour. Being the ideal passenger, out of sight, out of mind, and no complaining. Well, normally I would thank you for a good flight, but the stewardesses didn't come by with a wee drink, so I hope you'll understand if I don't rave about the in-flight service. Understood, I said. He nodded, grinned, and then allowed the nurse to guide him and his wife down the all-too-familiar stairs and into the waiting ambulance. For more information on Natasha Rosewood, please check the links below. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to A Writer's Life? And if you want more information about myself and my novel Secrets in the Shadows, visit my website at www.heigabohm.ca. For a kinder world, take care of each other.